Welcome to Theology in Progress. I'm your host, Jordan Apodaca. Last week, I interviewed Samuel Watkinson on the topic of universalism. And today, for this episode, I want to dive into a few of the things that were brought up in more detail. As I mentioned last week, I am not a universalist. I actually am pretty agnostic when it comes to what happens to people after death. I do believe that there is an afterlife, and I believe that what happens to you in that afterlife is very much predicated on how you respond to Jesus and whether you are in a relationship with God through Jesus. So I affirm that 100%. What I'm not sure about are things like the number of people who are going to be with God in eternity, whether there is an afterlife for those who reject God, and whether there is such a thing as post-death salvation. Those are issues where I don't think the Bible speaks clearly enough to be able to say with certainty one way or another. And what I want to do today is riff on the quote that Samuel mentioned right at the end of the episode. If we hadn't already been going for an hour, I probably would have brought up a lot of this at the time. But I knew that he had to get going, and I had some stuff to attend to as well. But at the end of the podcast, if you haven't listened to it, well, here's one of the best quotes that was brought up. He quoted Origen. And if you think that Origen is a heretic and that his ideas were condemned, you really do need to listen to the last podcast. But he quotes Origen. And the topic is on the question of whether God destroys the sinner or whether he destroys the individual. Because scripture is filled with imagery of God destroying, of God's wrath coming to consume. And the question is, what is it that God is going to consume? What is it that God is going to destroy? And so Origen asks, who is the person whom God shall kill? Is it Paul the persecutor? or Paul the teacher of the church. And Origen goes on to say that it is Paul the persecutor that God has come to kill. It is not Paul the informer and teacher of the church. So this made me think of various passages throughout scripture. I just wanted to talk about them with you for a second and talk about how we might initially be inclined to interpret these, but then realizing what we can learn from this perspective of Origen And what I want to make really clear is that you do not have to be a universalist to affirm these things. I think this is a way of viewing scripture that I picked up from Samuel, from Origen, and I want to share it with you and kind of abstract it from that whole debate. This isn't about universalism. This is about how do we read language of God's wrath and violence and destruction in the Bible. And the whole question is, what is the object of that? So, for example, in Deuteronomy 32, 37 through 41, it says, See, now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Notice the order. God does not say, I make alive at birth and then I kill at death. He's not talking about the physical life here. He's not talking about, I make you live and then I kill you. No, he says, I kill and I make alive. That is the process that we must go through. And this is how Paul talks, doesn't he? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. God killed me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the question in Deuteronomy, the question in Galatians is, why did Paul get killed? And what about Paul was killed? Was he entirely killed? 
No, it was the pride. It was the sin. It was the old man in Paul that was killed. It wasn't Paul, the image of God. It was Paul, the sinner. And that was killed to make way for this new life that God had intended to pour into Paul. It's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. And again, notice the order in Deuteronomy. It's I kill and I make alive. The purpose for the killing is for the living. Yet so many of us, when we come upon Deuteronomy, I know people who want to interpret it in terms of saying God has the right to show off how glorious he is to destroy some people. But even in Deuteronomy, that's not the end goal. The end goal of that death, the end goal of that wounding is life and health. It is a massive perspective change. There is a passage in the New Testament in Mark 1. Jesus is in a synagogue, and there's a man with an unclean spirit. And this unclean spirit, through the man, cried out, quote, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So notice there is an unclean spirit. He sees Jesus. He recognizes him as holy. And his question is, have you come to destroy us? Well, what's the answer? Has Jesus come to destroy? The answer is yes. But the crucial follow-up question is, what is Jesus coming to destroy? Is he coming to destroy the man who has the demons? Or is he coming to destroy the demons? Listen, when you read these texts of I kill and I make alive, know that this isn't God saying, I'm going to kill you. It's God's promise to you that he will kill the sin in you one way or another. He will get that out of you. This is what C.S. Lewis was talking about, that when we invite God into our lives, which is not the best way to word it, but when we welcome God's presence into our souls, he is not coming to just set up office in a humble little abode. He's going to tear things down until he can build up a palace for himself to live in. So this man asks, have you come to destroy us? It's the demons within him asking. Jesus rebukes the man, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And the man was well. The man was fine. And yet he did, in a sense, kill this man. It talks about how he fell to the ground, convulsing. This is death, but it is life. It is death for the sake of life. And it's not just Deuteronomy. It's not just Paul. It's not just this one story with Jesus. There is a broader theological point here that Paul draws out in Romans 11. Now, for many people, when they think of Romans 9 through 11, they often think this is the clearest case where universalism, which we talked about last week, is false. Because God's whole point Paul's whole point is that God wants some people and not others. That's what election is all about. I'll give my opinion on that in just a second. Romans 11, though. Romans 11, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So here's another word to notice. Kind of like destruction and kill, hardened. It sounds like a very negative thing. It sounds like it's the end, someone's final sentence. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. 
And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Could there be a stronger statement that God's purpose for some people is that in the end they be in ruin? Paul just quotes David saying, let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. He says forever. And yet, the very next verse, that's verse 10, where Paul's quoting David. Very next verse, verse 11, he says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. And if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? For Paul... Even this strongest language of God blinding people, bending them back forever, giving them eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear, down to this very day, this language of hardening, is not the last word. God does kill. God does harden. God does blind. God does stuff your ears so you cannot hear. He does all these things. Yet that is never the last word. That is not the last word with God. Judgment always leads to mercy. And this is the last passage I'll read to you now. It's at the end of Romans 11. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. And here's the kicker. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy. On all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I often hear people quote that last verse about the wisdom and knowledge of God and how it's unsearchable. And yet what it's clearly talking about, what makes it so amazing, is that Paul is realizing that even the judgment of God, even the blinding of God, even reprobation is for our good. I think that a proper biblical doctrine of reprobation, which is the idea that God blinds eyes and keeps us from himself at times, is always for the sake of mercy. It always leads to that. So yeah, I think in some ways the Calvinist would think that me and people who are even open to the idea of universalism have a soft view of God. But in my mind, this is the only view that takes seriously this biblical data, the fact that God kills for the sake of making alive. He never kills just to kill. He kills to make alive. Thank you for listening to this show. If you like it, please leave a review and a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It will help other people find the show. Peace.